Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, October 29th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with today's top stories. Elon Musk buys Twitter. Putin says the world is in the greatest danger since World War II. Iraq gets a new government. Pelosi's husband is attacked with a hammer. A January 6th rioter gets seven and a half years for assaulting an officer. Zeldin's New York campaign is investigated over super PACs. Obama campaigns for Georgia Democrats. Republican Liz Cheney endorses a Democrat. An ex-CIA officer investigated for allegedly spying for Qatar. And over 30 are killed by a storm in the Philippines. In our top story, Elon Musk completes his Twitter takeover. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Newsweek, CNN, BBC News, New York Post, and Timcast. On Thursday, Elon Musk formally completed his $44 billion acquisition of Twitter, ahead of a deadline of 5 p.m. Eastern on Friday to complete the deal or be forced to go to trial in November. While Twitter declined to comment, Musk acknowledged the takeover in a tweet, saying, quote, the bird is freed. According to people familiar with the decision, he fired CEO Parag Agrawal and other executives, including CFO Ned Segal and top legal and policy executive Vijaya Gadeh. Twitter chairman Brett Taylor also updated his LinkedIn profile to indicate he was no longer with the company. According to a shareholder, however, earlier reports of plans to fire 75% of staff are inaccurate. Musk has vowed to take the company private and reshape Twitter with an emphasis on free speech. He reportedly plans to reverse lifetime bans on past users and recently stated that he wants the future of civilization to have a common digital town square. As of noon on Thursday, Twitter's engineers could no longer make changes to the platform's code, with Tesla engineers employed to monitor the code and report their findings to Musk. The billionaire reportedly intends to remain the new CEO until a replacement is found. Musk originally agreed to buy the company in April, but by July, he had changed his mind, citing bot and spam issues. Twitter subsequently sued him before he renewed the purchase earlier this month. On this program, we separate these spins from the facts, so here they are, starting with the right narrative spin from Fox News. Musk's acquisition is a real opportunity for Twitter to become free of biased censorship. With the billionaire entrepreneur at the helm, he can retain the general code of conduct to fight deceitful foreign influences, while also allowing the marketplace of ideas to flourish, freeing it from nefarious fact-checkers. And we have a left narrative for this story being provided by DW. While billionaires like Elon Musk may have the money to buy and influence social media platforms, they don't possess the character to manage them properly. Musk's Twitter history reveals an erratic personality with the potential to vastly alter the market with a single tweet simply to advance his own interest. With Twitter set to have no barriers to what can or cannot be said, the app is looking like a disaster waiting to happen. And from time to time, we have a nerd narrative provided by the Metaculous Prediction community. We've got one on this story, and it says that there is a 4% chance that Elon Musk will hold a major political office in the United States before February of 2033. Well, and that, which is great because that means your ban is going to be lifted, too. I can't wait to see what you have to tweet. Yeah, yeah I mean, they threw the baby out with the bathwater there. Yeah, they'll be back in force. <laughs> Look out, everybody. Oh, no. 
Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. And now our daily roundup of the conflict in Ukraine as we reach day 247 of the fighting, where Putin says that the world faces its most dangerous decade since World War II. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, NBC, Newsbud, Washington Post, Politico, and Ukraine Forum. In a wide-ranging address on Thursday, Russian President Vladimir Putin said that the world is facing the most dangerous decade since World War II as Western elites scramble to prevent their crumbling grip on global dominance. The historical period of the West's undivided dominance over world affairs is coming to an end, Putin told the Valdai Discussion Club in Moscow, a conference of international policy experts. We are standing at a historical frontier. Ahead is probably the most dangerous, unpredictable, and at the same time important decade since the end of World War II, Putin continued. Putin also accused the U.S. of inciting the war in Ukraine, alleging that the West was playing a, quote, dangerous, bloody, and dirty geopolitical game. Nonetheless, he said he doesn't view the West as an enemy of Russia, adding that Moscow had one message for the leading countries of the West and NATO, let's stop being enemies, let's live together. He also said Russia sees no need to use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine, comments which were rejected by U.S. President Joe Biden, saying, If he has no intention, why does he keep talking about it? The president added, he's been very dangerous in how he's approached this. He can end this all, get out of Ukraine. Elsewhere, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin told reporters that Ukraine can expect to receive two U.S. air defense systems that had previously been promised to the country early next month. The U.S. plans to send an additional six systems, but they could reportedly be years away from delivery as they still need to be contracted and built. Meanwhile, according to an American diplomatic cable obtained by Politico, the U.S. has accelerated the delivery of its more accurate mainstay nuclear bomb to NATO bases in Europe from next spring to December. Pentagon officials have said the move is to ensure stockpiles of the B-6112 airdropped gravity bomb are modernized and safe, and added that plans are completely unconnected to developments in Ukraine. On the ground, as heavy fighting continued in the Bakhmut region of Donetsk, Ukrainian officials also recorded continued Russian shelling in Sumy, Cherniv, Mykolaiv, and Dnipropetrovsk. Ukrainian officials also said that four civilians were killed and nine were injured in Donetsk over the past day, while one was killed and three were injured in the Zaporizhia region. The bodies of five people who'd been killed earlier were also reportedly discovered in Donetsk. Scott, thanks for the facts on this long-running news story. And we do have some spins that have emerged beginning with a pro-establishment narrative Coming from Newsbud, if Putin has no intention of using nuclear weapons, why does he keep threatening to do so? The Kremlin's aggressive tact is raising tensions between Russia and the West at the cost of the security and safety of innocent civilians in Ukraine. The Putin regime must give up this unwinnable war to protect itself and the rest of Europe. TASS brings us the pro-Russia narrative. Russia's doctrine on nuclear weapons is clear. They can only be used in retaliation to a first strike. Despite accusations that Moscow's comments are incendiary, they have in fact been measured responses to inflammatory remarks made by Western leaders. And we do have a nerd narrative saying there's a 4% chance that at least one nuclear weapon will be detonated in Ukraine before 2023. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Eric, remember I said I was going to buy you those French fries? Hold off for a little while. I just got to grow the potatoes first. I don't know. That's so crazy (laughs) that they... 
you can have these missile systems, but they haven't been developed or built right. or anything yet. Like, right. what are we doing? Yeah. I know. What, what's the point? In our next story, Iraqi parliament approves a new government. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Arab News, Washington Post, France 24, New York Times, and Associated Press. On Thursday, Iraq's parliament approved a new government after a year-long political deadlock headed by newly appointed Prime Minister Mohammed Shia al-Sudani, who previously served as Iraq's human rights minister and minister of labor and social affairs. This comes a year after an election that saw the influential Shiite Muslim cleric Muqtada al-Sadr win, but failed to rally enough support to form a government. In August, the cleric ordered the resignation of his 73 lawmakers and announced plans to leave politics, triggering violent protests. A majority of the 253 lawmakers present on Thursday appointed al-Sudani's 21 ministers. However, two posts, the Construction and Housing Ministry and the Environment Ministry, remain undecided. This is the first government since 2005 that doesn't include seats for al-Sadr's bloc. The new prime minister and his cabinet are faced with a myriad of challenges, including soaring unemployment, declining infrastructure, and widespread corruption. Al-Sudani has vowed to meet these challenges and pledged to hold early elections within a year. In a first step toward ending the political deadlock and forming a new government, Iraqi lawmakers elected Abdul Latif Rashid as president earlier this month. In the lead-up to this, a series of rockets hit the Green Zone and other parts of Baghdad. When al-Sudani was first nominated as prime minister in July, al-Sadr loyalists stormed the Green Zone and the Iraqi parliament. Despite concerns that Thursday's vote would see fresh violence, there were no reports of unrest. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from The Guardian. The formation of a new government brings a much-needed end to the year-long political deadlock that has left Iraq without a 2022 budget, held up spending on critical infrastructure, and impeded economic reform. While there's still a long way to go, the new government has put forward a promising program to help the country get back on track. And the Washington Institute gives us an establishment-critical narrative. This new government might resolve Iraq's political deadlock, but it isn't the solution needed to move away from Iraq's defunct political system, which faces challenges far beyond what the new prime minister has outlined. While the new cabinet's success remains to be seen, going in with one eye shut, as al-Sudani is doing, is an approach doomed to fail, with an inevitable sadrist uprising on the horizon. And in a developing story out of California, Pelosi's husband attacked in home invasion. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Fox News, CNN, and Daily Caller. Paul Pelosi, the 82-year-old husband of Democratic U.S. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, was attacked in the couple's San Francisco, California home by a hammer-wielding man on Friday, according to the police. He was rushed to the hospital. Nancy Pelosi was in Washington, D.C. at the time, her office confirmed. Her husband is expected to make a full recovery. San Francisco Police Chief William Scott said the 42-year-old David DePap was arrested at the scene and will be charged with several crimes, including attempted homicide and assault with a deadly weapon. Although no motive for the attack has been officially announced, CNN reported that DePap tried to tie up Paul Pelosi, quote, until Nancy got home and told police he was, quote, waiting for Nancy when they arrived at the scene. DePap also posted controversial memes on Facebook on topics including COVID, the 2020 election, and the January 6th Capitol riot. 
The attack inspired an outpouring of get-well wishes for the Pelosi's and condemnation from both sides of the political aisle. President Biden, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, and House GOP Leader Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, all issued similar messages. Nancy Pelosi's spokesperson stated, The Speaker and her family are grateful to the first responders and medical professionals involved and request privacy at this time. House members are currently off during a district work period. Scott, thanks for the facts. Two spins have emerged from this story, beginning with a left narrative coming from MSNBC. This attack is a predictable and tragic product of the dangerous rhetoric and toxic conspiracy theories spewing from the far right. Their message of survivalism makes it sound as though defeating those on the other side of the political spectrum is a life or death matter. The right-lurching GOP must be held accountable for its extremism and the violence it inspires. Town Hall brings us the right narrative spin. Crime across the U.S., especially in San Francisco, is skyrocketing because of soft policies Democrats advocate for and enact under the guise of social justice. Now that one of their more high-profile party members is the victim, maybe they'll toughen up. Of course, this is nothing new to the thousands of other Americans who've been under threat for years, but have been neglected by woke, left-leaning Democrats. In our next story, a January 6th rioter has been sentenced for assaulting an officer. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Independent, Fox News, CBS, and Guardian. Albuquerque Cusper Head, a Tennessee man who admitted to assaulting Metropolitan Police Department officer Michael Fanone during the January 6th U.S. Capitol riots, was sentenced Thursday to seven years and six months in prison, six months shy of the statutory maximum sentence. Prosecutors described how Head grabbed Fanone and yelled, quote, I've got one, before dragging the officer into a crowd that beat and shocked him with a stun gun. Fanone testified the attack gave him a heart attack and a traumatic brain injury that cost him his career. Head, who was arrested in April and pleaded guilty in May, admitted he went to the Capitol after hearing then-President Donald Trump's speech on the ellipse. His attorneys classified his actions as, quote, another bad decision. In their pre-sentencing filing, which asked for 60 months in prison, U.S. District Court Judge Amy Berman Jackson condemned Head's attitude during the attack, saying, quote, he was your prey, he was your trophy, adding that the dark shadow of tyranny continues to loom two years after the riot. Others have been charged for Fanon's assault, with Jackson last month sentencing Kyle Young to seven years and two months in prison for grabbing Fanon by the wrists, and Daniel D.J. Rodriguez, who is awaiting his February 2023 trial for shooting Fanon with a stun gun. Around 900 people have been charged with federal crimes related to January 6th, with over 430 of them pleading guilty and around 20 sentenced for assaulting police. We've got some heavy-duty political narratives on this story, Eric. NBC News gives us the Democratic narrative. Head had several opportunities to be a peaceful protester and avoid taking part in the violence, but he's seen on video assaulting Fanon. Sentencing him to a near-max term will hopefully send a message to future election deniers that things like this can never happen again and that there will be serious consequences for violent actions. A pro-Trump narrative is coming from The Federalist. Head's actions may have been inexcusable, but the Democrats are waging war on dissent, and that extends beyond Trump to his supporters who have serious questions about the integrity of the 2020 election. Just like authoritarian countries such as China, 
They've attempted to silence them by going after their livelihoods and even prosecuting them. They're not just going after one man for assault, but an entire political faction. We've got a nerd narrative on this story as well. This is this one says there's a 50% chance that 19 or more people will be charged by the U.S. Department of Justice with seditious conspiracy in connection with the January 6th Capitol riots. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. And now for today's daily roundup of stories coming out of the U.S. midterm elections as Zeldin's New York campaign is investigated over super PACs. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Political Wire, The New York Times, Times Union, and Fox News. New York's top election watchdog is reportedly investigating the campaign of Representative Lee Zeldin, the GOP nominee for governor, regarding potential violations of state law by coordinating with a pair of super PACs, or political action committees. Michael L. Johnson, the chief enforcement counsel at the New York State Board of Elections, asked the board to grant him expansive subpoena authority to elicit cooperation from the campaign and the groups, Save Our State Incorporated and Safe Together New York. The investigation was spurred when Democratic incumbent Kathy Hochul raised the issue with the Times Union of Albany on October 4th. She alleged that one donor provided $5 million over a couple of weeks in so-called dark money to run a negative campaign against her. The report claimed conservative billionaire Ronald Lauder donated $100,000 to his outside election spending group, Safe Together New York, with the company's political consultant, John McLaughlin, later receiving $100,000 from Safe Together for work on a radio ad criticizing Hochul. The investigation comes as Zeldin, a conservative four-term representative from Long Island, appears to be quickly gaining ground in polling. Zeldin may also face other legal challenges. Democrats filed a separate complaint on Tuesday against the Republican Governors Association, arguing that the $1.2 million it had directed to save our state broke New York law. And two spins emerging from this story, beginning with a Democratic narrative coming from New York Times. Zeldin and his supporters are pushing their luck by spending money on his campaign in nefarious ways. New York is one of the few states in the union that has banned coordination among funders, and Zeldin's conservative supporters seem to have violated this statute. Though Republicans are saying that the elections board is biased against Zeldin, there is little basis for this accusation. And Fox News counters that with the Republican narrative. Self-proclaimed, objective publications like the New York Times and Times Union have decided to openly intervene in a governor's race. They're pulling out every tactic to smear Zeldin, but fortunately, media meddlers don't get to decide who will be the governor of New York. Zeldin could pull off a stunning upset as voters are concerned about crime and the economy. The U.S. midterms continue to generate news as Obama campaigns for Georgia Democrats. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by the Syracuse Post-Standard, Fox 5 Atlanta, Reuters, and ABC. With the midterms just 11 days away, former President Obama is heading to Atlanta, Georgia to campaign for Democrats, including rallies for U.S. Senate candidate Raphael Warnock and gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams. After Georgia voters elected Democratic Senators Warnock and John Ossoff two years ago, Republicans are looking to use the state to take back the Senate majority. Polls show Warnock and GOP challenger Herschel Walker's race to be close. Obama is kicking off a five-state campaign tour that will also take him to Wisconsin, Michigan, Nevada, and Pennsylvania, with his last appearance scheduled for the Saturday before the November 8th election, where he will join President Biden. 
Obama left office in January 2017 with a 59% approval rating, which increased to 63% a year later in a post-presidential poll. He holds sway with both Democratic and independent voters. Georgia has already seen a record-breaking more than 1.1 million early voters as of Thursday, compared to around 730,000 at this point in the 2018 midterms. Obama's presence also focuses on encouraging voter turnout in black communities, a voting bloc that helped Warnock claim victory two years ago. 18% of the state's electorate have already cast their ballots. While most of these votes have been in person, approximately 118,000 Georgians have voted through absentee ballots. Unsurprisingly, we've got some diametrically opposed narrative spins on this story. Let's start with the Democratic narrative from ABC News. Obama has been a powerful campaign force for Democrats for decades. With his approval rate having risen since leaving office and his rare appeal to independent voters, his presence on the campaign trail is a boon to the Democrats. No former president, including Trump, can boost a party's enthusiasm like Obama can, including in a key battleground like Georgia. And a Republican narrative comes from Washington Examiner. Biden has ruined the Democrats' image so terribly that his party has replaced him with Obama on the campaign trail. While they may portray confidence in Obama's ability to campaign, what this proves is the Democrats are grasping at straws as they await a massive defeat in November. Metaculus is here again with another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 56% chance that Raphael Warnock will be reelected in the 2022 United States Senate election in Georgia. Still more news from the U.S. midterms as the GOP's Cheney endorses Democrat Slotkin. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by USA Today, Forbes, The Washington Post, CNN, The Detroit News, and Axios. On Thursday, U.S. Representative Liz Cheney, Republican of Wyoming, endorsed Democratic Representative Alyssa Slotkin in the race for Michigan's newly drawn 7th District, adding that she will campaign for Slotkin in the Lansing area next Tuesday. Slotkin is vying for re-election against Republican Tom Barrett, who was among 11 members of the Michigan State Senate to pen a letter to Congress on January 5, 2021, asking it to investigate claims of fraud and irregularities surrounding the 2020 presidential election. A poll commissioned by the Detroit News and WDIV-TV last week indicated a six-point lead to Slotkin against Barrett, with around 8% of respondents still undecided and 3.6% supporting Libertarian candidate Lee Daly. This is the first formal endorsement of a Democrat made by Cheney, though she has previously expressed support for Democratic candidates running against Republicans who dispute the results of the 2020 election. Formerly having a leadership role in the House GOP caucus, Cheney has become a staunch critic of former President Trump in her scope as co-leader of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 Capitol riot. Cheney will leave Congress at the end of her current term after losing the GOP primary for her at-large Wyoming seat in August and declared last month that she would not remain a Republican if Trump is the party's nominee for president in 2024. All right, we've got a couple of spins that have emerged from this story, both a Republican and Democrat narrative. I'll begin with the Republican narrative coming from Fox News. It should come as no surprise that Cheney has turned on the Republican Party and endorsed Slotkin, as they both follow the same warmongering agenda that will only lead to more senseless entanglement in foreign wars. Barrett, meanwhile, puts America's troops and their families first. As promised, here's that Democratic narrative from Politico. 
As the U.S. faces threats at home and abroad, Cheney is putting her country first and supporting serious people regardless of their party. Despite not agreeing with Slotkin on every issue, she knows that the Democratic candidate is committed to working hard and putting the country above political divide. And a nerd narrative has emerged from this story. Coming from the Metaculous Prediction community, it says there's an 81% chance that Republicans will win control of the U.S. House of Representatives in 2022. In a special report, an ex-CIA officer has been investigated for allegedly spying for Qatar. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, France 24, and USA Today. A former CIA officer allegedly involved in an extensive spying operation on behalf of Qatar, ahead of its hosting of the upcoming 2022 World Cup, is the subject of an FBI probe, according to an executive AP News investigation. His actions reportedly went beyond just sport and resulted in an attempt to influence U.S. policy towards the country. According to two anonymous officials, the FBI's investigation of Kevin Chalker's work for Qatar focuses on whether he and his company, Global Risk Advisors, or GRA, broke laws related to foreign lobbying, surveillance, and exporting sensitive technologies and tradecraft. Chalker was reportedly tasked with improving the image of Qatar with U.S. policymakers while undermining those who criticized the Gulf state nation and its monarchy. In addition to allegedly spying on soccer officials from rival countries, Chalker and his firm reportedly engaged in a Facebook honeypot scheme to lure and undermine critical officials. GRA also allegedly trained Qatari officials in surveillance and counter-surveillance techniques adopted by U.S. intelligence agencies, banned under U.S. law. The firm also reportedly helped create a plan to allow Qatar to track mobile phones in the country with extreme accuracy and allow analysts to isolate individual conversations and listen in real time. Chalker's lawyer said the firm sought authorization from the U.S. government whenever its work required, never engaged in any unlawful activity, and was unaware of any federal investigation. The FBI said it could neither confirm nor deny the existence of an investigation. Qatar and the CIA didn't respond to requests for comment. Contentious story results in some contentious narratives beginning with Narrative A from France 24. Qatar has sought to improve its image and accumulate soft power in hosting the 2022 World Cup. However, soft power only works if it's backed up by good behavior. These influence meddling revelations alongside evidence of the mistreatment of construction workers and human rights concerns in the country mean Qatar has been drowning in bad publicity ahead of the tournament this November. And USA Today gives us a narrative B for this story. Qatar has been subjected to an unprecedented campaign of unfair and unfounded criticism since winning the bid to host the World Cup. At first, Qatar sought to engage with the criticism in good faith and dialogue. However, as the campaign of lies and double standards continues, it has reached such a fever pitch that one can't help but wonder whether there's an ulterior motive for these unfounded allegations. You soccer fan, Eric? You know what? I was years ago when my when my daughters played, but I, I enjoy watching it, though. What about you? I mean, the World Cup is when a lot of people pay attention to it. I want to like soccer. It feels like I should like soccer, but I often find when I watch the games, I'm not super connected with it. Uh, but that being said, if some person didn't know much about baseball was watching a baseball game, it'd be like watching paint dry. I understand. If you don't, if you don't know the game within the game, it'd be pretty boring. 
And our final story, tragedy hits the Philippines as over 31 are killed from an approaching tropical storm. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, NBC News, and the San Diego Union-Tribune. On Friday, officials announced that more than 31 people have died and nine others are missing following torrential rains that caused flash flooding and landslides in the southern Philippine province of Mangandano. According to local officials, most of the victims were swept away in the torrential floods and drowned, or were hit by mudslide debris that caused destruction across multiple towns. The deluge of rain arrived ahead of tropical storm Nalgi, which surprised residents with flash flooding from unusually heavy overnight rains. After floodwaters receded in other areas, Cotabato City remained inundated. Rescuers in boats and emergency teams that included military units searched impacted areas. Nalgi is just the most recent of many tropical systems to batter the Philippines, bringing large amounts of rain that caused destructive flooding and landslides. Nalgi could intensify as it continues to travel over the Philippine Sea. And we have three spins coming from this story, beginning with Narrative A, and it's coming from Guardian. The Philippines government hasn't done enough to protect Filipinos while climate change intensifies typhoons. Despite constant disasters, the government has relaxed restrictions on economic activities, especially mining, that make these disasters worse. Filipinos need to elect leaders determined to combat the climate crisis and hold the global north accountable. And the World Bank brings us Narrative B. The Philippine government has made great strides in preparing for climate change. In 2009, Congress passed the Climate Change Act and developed a roadmap for climate programs, including efforts to bolster infrastructure and protect the Filipino people. While any loss of life is a tragedy, these actions are reducing damage from dangerous storms. And we hear from the nerds on this final story, and they say that there's a 30% chance that large-scale solar radiation management will be used to mitigate the effects of climate change in the 21st century. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, October 29th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.